Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 110. What is today? Today is Tuesday, April 9th, and it was recorded in Bushwick, Brooklyn. All right, what's been going on with me since we last spoke, or since I last spoke? Well, the next travel is going to be Morocco, with brief stops in Portugal and Spain. Really, really excited about that. Hopefully, I'll get you some content and some cool conversations and interviews from those countries. But yeah, I'm super stoked about that. That's going to be in July. So in the meantime, I think I might have mentioned this last episode, but I've been doing a little bit of uh, background extra work on TV shows. Um, You have to sign NDAs every time that you film. So I'm not going to talk yet about what they are until they come out. And once they do, I'll, I'll share what shows they are and you'll be able to see me for all of two to five seconds that, uh, that I actually appear on the shows. But yeah, that's been really cool. Something that I can talk about is on Sunday, I went to a volunteer event in Manhattan and we packed supplies and boxes for Syrian women and for refugees, but I believe also for Syrian women who are still in Syria and are having difficult, uh, having difficulty get ac- getting access. Wow, I can talk today, huh? Getting access to uh, toiletries and sanitary supplies and things like that. That was done through the Multi Faith Alliance. You can put that name into Google to find them, or you can check them out on Instagram at Multi Faith Aid A I D. If you want to, you know, support. Uh, financially or to support by giving your labor and your time. It's a really great organization. And we uh, had the event at the Brotherhood Synagogue in Manhattan. And that place was really cool too because they have these seders and these events in which they invite people of all faiths to come. And there are uh, Muslim leaders, Christian leaders, and Jewish leaders. And it's really cool because they're bridging cultural and uh, religious gaps and coming together as a community. So I thought that was really, really cool. And I'm trying to have someone from the Multi-Faith Alliance to come on and to talk about uh, what they do and to talk about Syria because I think that would be interesting and enlightening for you. Okay, enough about me. This episode is with the artist Razan Al-Sharaf and she's really amazing. So uh, Maxim, whose Instagram handle is Artist Portraits. He's somebody that I've been talking to, but I haven't quite met yet. We've crossed paths, like I've seen him as far back as as 10 years ago, where we would go to some of the same shows here in Brooklyn. Um, And I think we, Jeff, who I've had on this podcast, is friends with him, uh, Jeff Eaton. And he has this cool series where he's trying to photograph what is it, 100, I think, 100 artists in their studios. And so it's really cool because it's like like so many people that I like to follow, he's sort of a curator, and I get to learn about people doing cool things just by checking out his social media. I don't really like social media, but when I like it, it's for reasons like that. So uh, thank you, Maxim, for letting me know about Razan. Now... She does fine arts, right? So she draws and she paints and she has an exhibit that she created that I think probably is getting her the most buzz. And that is she's, she did a hundred portraits of ISIS members, of deceased ISIS members, of terrorists. And um, it's really thought provoking. 
it's interesting because it sort of humanizes them, which then you think like, well, should they be humanized or should I even feel empathy for someone like this? Especially being a New Yorker who was, you know, in New York when 9-11 happened and the feelings that that conjures up. It's really interesting. Um, I might not be articulating myself so well about it right now, but we get into we get into all of this in our conversation. And at such a young age, it's amazing that she's so accomplished already and, and so thoughtful about the type of art that she's creating. You know, uh, we get into this, but it's something that can conjure up an, an emotional response. Uh, it can make you think. It can make people perhaps disagree with her. Uh, but really what it seems to me is she's just trying to create a conversation and a dialogue. And with that particular project that we're talking about, I think she really did a good job of that. Because when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, first of all, without any context, I wouldn't know that these were terrorists. And also, like I said, it makes me think like, wow, like these, these could be anybody, you know, which just goes to show that, um, you know, a, a terrorist doesn't necessarily fit um, a physical prototype. But a lot of her art is centered around Arab identity and she gets labeled as that. So we talk about that and maybe her desire to shed some of those labels in the future. Just a really, really cool conversation that we had in her studio. So I'm thankful that she let me check that out and go to her Instagram, go to the show notes for this episode and you'll find out about her, about some of the artists that she she mentioned in this episode that you might not have written down. You can find those in the show notes so you can... Uh, check out some more cool people and check out Razon. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now. Hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, cool. Well, first of all, thank you. This is really exciting. Yeah, super excited. Thank you for having me. I saw, well, I first heard about your work because I'm kind of in touch with Maxim, who does the artist portraits. Mm -hmm. um, we have like sort of interconnecting social circles because of like the music that we listen to. I used to see him at shows and his like social media is really cool because he sort of like curates um, all this information about artists in New York. Mm -hmm. um, so shout out to Maxim at Artist Portraits. But uh, I checked out the work you were doing and I thought it was super interesting and so that's why I reached out to you. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, super excited to be sitting here in your studio today in Brooklyn. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. That's actually the spot where I took the photo with Max. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I recognize some of this and from your, uh, from your Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. So you were born in Kuwait. Yes. At how old were you when you came to the States? I was 18. 18. Okay. So you came specifically for school? Yes. Okay. So I think that a lot of times when people think about places in the world, they kind of have uh, an impression of it because of their public school education. Mm. So I've been to uh, Vietnam three times and my impression of it coming out of high school is just like the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you say Kuwait to 
the average American will say, <laughs> right? For. To be fair, yeah. They're going to think, if, if they even got that far in, mm-hmm. in their history education, like, oh, the first Gulf War. Um, what was life like growing up in Kuwait for you? Um, totally the opposite of war. Uh, <laughs> it's a very uh, sheltered life to some extent. Um, uh, Kuwait's really growing fast um, since growing up and now it changed dramatically. Um, I think right after, I was born after the Gulf War anyway. Okay. Um, it happened in 91. I was born in 96. Um, so Kuwait was sort of rebuilding itself already. Um, there was a budding art scene. Um, we oh, had cool. lots of um, places to explore. It was mostly malls, but people were out and, and socializing and having a good time. Um, by the time I was in high school, was like this mini air of this feminist revolution that Ooh. was exciting to be part of and, and sort of see um, the rise of social media and everything. Um, social media being like the biggest form of communication where I'm from because... I don't know, public, uh, public uh, speech and <laughs> all of that is not as progressive and open as you would think or hope. Um, it's getting there. But um, yeah, I, I found a lot more people um, explaining their viewpoints and um, sort of, uh, what's the word, like fighting against the political scene through social media oh, and all that's of awesome. that. So it was really fun growing up. And I think that's what... Um, that was like the seed that was planted um, before I left. Okay. Um, so I got here and then I wanted to explore that more, that, that rise in, in um, freedom of speech in the Middle East and especially the Gulf. There's a massive like expat community in mm-hmm. Kuwait, right? I think it's about 50%, yeah. Wow. Um, the last time I checked statistics, it was 2 million expats and 2 million Kuwaitis. From other Arab countries or...? All over the place. Uh, uh-huh. Other Arab countries, um, other, um, you know, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, uh, spaces in Africa. There's a lot of Americans too, Canadians, wow. Australians, because they teach in, in our high schools and middle schools. Oh, and okay. Schools. Um, but um, there's also a lot of uh, other Arab countries. Okay. And, yeah. And so you came to New York and you went to SVA? Yes. Wow. Awesome. Um, Great school. Yeah, well, what is that process like, um, you know, living in Kuwait and applying to schools in the States? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there, uh, is there financial aid? Is there assistance with the process? Um, yeah, so Kuwait is pretty awesome in, in financing a lot of things. So we have a scholarship system where you need a minimum requirement in your high school GPA um, and then an acceptance letter from an accredited university in the States or in Europe. Oh. Um, and then you just send in all the paperwork and they give you a scholarship and allowance. Whoa, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's really cool. It's the only way I could afford living in the city for four years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I understand that. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned how you were sort of influenced by the rising feminist scene. Uh, at what point in your life did you become interested in in creation and creating art and becoming mm-hmm. an artist? Um, well, I always refer to what my mom said, is that I was drawing before I was writing or wow. even talking. I, I think at age two, I was drawing cats um, <laughs> and faces. <laughs> so um, it sort of just started there. Um, throughout middle school and high school, I was just drawing and painting on my own. And then by the time I was ready to apply for college, I was just like, okay, this is kind of what I want to do. Wow. Um, and yeah. And... Your medium, I guess, is uh, 
oil painting and mm-hmm. ink and canvas and things like that? Oil, ink, acrylic on canvas, yeah. Okay. Predominantly. Okay. Now, uh, there's been a lot of buzz about you uh, lately. If, really? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, so there's a lot of stuff on the internet, and I'll, I'll get to specifically um, uh, your project doing 100 portraits mm-hmm. in a little bit, but uh, you get labeled as um, like an, an Arab artist. Mm. And this, this might sound like a really silly question, but again, just to help people maybe to understand who fits into the Arab identity? Because I think that often people use Arab and Muslim synonymously mm-hmm. and they're not interchangeable. So mm-hmm. uh, who fits within like the Arab label? Um, it's a, it, that's a massive question. It's like saying, you know, who fits in the American label? And mm. it's the direct answer is based on geography, I guess. Um, but I would say there are multiple facets to identifying people. And we can't just, you know, the way I'm being labeled as Arab artist is because I'm from an Arab country and I make wor- work about Arab politics and... Mm. and culture and all of that. There's a lot of artists that are just labeled as artists that are from the Arab world, but they're just artists creating in their own um, their own direction. So I don't know. I think from a personal, my personal answer to that from personal experience is that moving to SVA and, and starting to make art, um, that's when I realized that this label was going to put be put on me. And the answer was, do I want to move on being labeled as Arab artist mm. or do I want to just be artist and then whatever? Um, and I think I stuck to it because because of the work I'm making, because of the um, subject matter, because I want to open this certain dialogue that people have with the stigma of Arab mm. um, and the confusion that you said of Arab being interchangeable with Muslim or, um, you know, Later on with the project Arab being interchangeable with terrorists and all of right. that. Um, yeah. It's interesting because, again, like I come from a, a background in education and I did global history, I did U.S. history. And, yeah, like the, the term Arab was confusing for my high school students, I think, because to, to be able to say like uh, parts of North Africa, there are people who identify as Arab, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, but that's like not on the Arabian Peninsula. But it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but you have to look at, at the history of the region through conquest, through trade, through the diffusion of cultures. Language. Um, yeah, language, um, you know, food, lifestyle, mm-hmm. that there, the Arab identity does not just exist on the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And then also... <laughs> um, there are Christians, there are mm-hmm. people who are secular, there are people who are Jewish, there are people who are Muslim, all living within like this region that gets labeled as Arab. So, um, yeah, I think that's that maybe is tricky for some Americans. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be that tricky. Um, do you think, like, do you think then that there's uh, a specific stereotype and are you, through your art, sort of looking to like, I guess, like reimagine what it is to be Arab. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, that was that exact phrase is actually um, part of a show that I created last year oh. um, at Ardex and it's called Young Arab Artists. Um, and the, um, the sort of caption was, um, 
Arabs trying to imagine what it means to be Arab. Mm. Um, and so identity comes into question, um, culture, upbringing. Um, there's a lot of Arabs that are in America and live here. So are they considered Americans or Arabs? There's a billion questions. Um, also to, to add, that, you know, to geography, there's, you know, the Arab world, there's the Gulf, there's the MENA region, which is like a whole other thing, Middle mm. East and North Africa. Um, I think for me, what I'm trying to do is explain my personal connection to it and my history with it um, as being identified as Arab in the West and then trying to understand my own identity um, as being Kuwaiti um, and being from the Gulf. And that that ends up, you know, giving me a lot of questions to answer. And those questions are answered through my paintings and the work that I make. That's awesome. I, I, <laughs> I pulled a quote. I don't have it uh, in memory here, but uh, in your Harper's Bazaar article mm. that I think sort of maybe touches on that. Um, so I'll read it, but you said, I'm also interested in untangling the conversation around identity, particularly within the context of the Gulf region, mm-hmm. where there's traditionally been an emphasis on ethnic purity, despite the fact that most people can trace their roots to many places. Um, what do you mean by that, by the emphasis on ethnic purity? Because mm-hmm. I think I know, and I think I've experienced that in other regions, mm. um, but, but what are you referring to? Um, so there's this very specific thing that people in the Gulf region have with thinking that if you're authentically Kuwaiti or authentically from Qatar, from um, Saudi Arabia, um, that you are more ethnically pure than people who have mixed backgrounds. Mm. Um, so me, for example, my dad's family moved from Iran to Kuwait. Um, my mom's ancestors, I guess, or grand-grand-grandparents moved from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait. But there's always this emphasis that if you're not, literally your parents are not Kuwaiti and your grandparents are not Kuwaiti and you were born and raised in Kuwait, that you're not Kuwaiti enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that played a lot, a huge role in um, a lot of identity formations in high school and middle school, especially because you would almost get bullied for not being 100% of where you're from or where you're supposed to be. And then there's a whole political part of people not being... Um, people whose mothers are not Kuwaiti, not having the same rights as if their dads were Kuwaiti and they were born in Kuwait. And if they were born and raised and grew up in Kuwait, they speak Kuwaiti, all their friends are Kuwaiti, they don't have the same amount of um, uh, benefits and civil rights as people who aren't born, or people who, wow. whose mothers aren't born yeah, from Kuwait. Okay, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm also going to sort of qualify that. I speak in sort of generalizations through the experiences that... Uh, that I've had in my life, right? Like I am like a white American male, so I'm I'm really speaking about uh, you know cultures and issues that I'm not necessarily a part of. So mm-hmm. if if people hear me and, and I sound ignorant on any topic, it's not like willful willful ignorance. Uh, I'm really interested in these things and and I like to learn about them mm-hmm. uh, and and share in uh, people's stories. But that's a it's. I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, like primarily uh, through through my travels, and that's something that I've seen in a lot of places. Because mm. if you're in Malaysia, to be Chinese Malay uh, is looked at differently by people mm. who are just Malay. Um, even like in, in Indonesia, um, there, there's politics of lightness, which you see like all over the world, where there are people who are not white, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's a really interesting thing because I've experienced that, particularly with young people, mm-hmm. 
there's more of a push right now towards like acceptance and Mm -hmm. progressive ideas and integration, but there's a lot of places still around the world. And Hey, here in America right now, we're like, yeah. Probably half the country is really sticking to sort of like a traditional way of life and traditional ideas. And those two things are butting up against each other really hard. Like, I mean, there's probably no better way to, to see that than in our country right now. Um, so, yeah, I guess like it's it's a cool thing to see when somebody through uh, different mediums and through their artwork can at least expose people to to different ideas and I guess mm-hmm. um, that's what you're doing trying yeah, <laughs> attempting <laughs> um, again with sort of uh, people sticking to uh, traditional ideas I don't want to like pigeonhole all or, or label all religions this way but I think that places that are really orthodox or people that are really devout they stick more to traditional ideas about um, like the relation of the sexes and like gender identity and things like that Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I'll use Indonesia just because I spent a lot of time there. But you know, if women want to be in the uh, in services and in the in the police force, they have to go through a virginity exam. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a Hasidic community in a building that's entirely Hasidic, Hasidic, and in the surrounding area, and you can see like most of the businesses really like all the businesses are being run by men Mm -hmm. and there are, you know, women have a lot of children and I'm not saying that to, you know, uh, demean them or anything, but there, there's really specific sort of gender roles. Um, so this is a really long way of circling back to, you know, places, uh, Muslim countries that are following a Orthodox ideology stick to traditional gender roles as well. So I'm wondering, sort of that climate in Kuwait. You said there's mm-hmm. a, a burgeoning uh, feminist movement, but is being uh, a woman who's an artist, is that a subversive act? Um, depending on who you ask. Okay. <laughs> um, a, a positive thing that I always like to mention is that Kuwait has a, a super high rate of women in um, private sector that have high high end jobs as men do. Oh, wow. um, a lot of women are in CEO positions and own companies and run them. Um, they also have a lot of um, uh, influence in the upcoming generations, especially my mom. Like, um, not to like always gush about my mom, but uh, oh, dude, please. She, um, you know, she really. Um, broke through a, a shit ton of glass ceilings, I think, um, that um, not only opened sort of perspectives of how powerful and smart and intellectual women can be, but also by um, sort of pushing against the that stereotype that they can't. Um, and her being, um, also being part-time single mom and having three kids, like I think she did a pretty amazing job, like um, basically running multiple companies and ending up in the parliament. Um, Whoa. Yeah, and now she's she's actually uh, getting her second master's degree in the UK. Wow, that's um, amazing. Yeah, as soon as all our kids left her to college, uh-huh. she just abandoned everything and went <laughs> to do her own thing, which is pretty awesome too. Yeah. Um, in the artist scene, um, there are a lot of women artists and a lot of men artists, um, a lot of artists in between, um, but uh, the scene itself... Um, I would say is dominated my, by men only because um, the institutions that run it are have started 
by men since the 50s and the 60s and whatever. Um, this feminist revolution that I was referring to brought up a lot more opportunities for women to open their own galleries, women to open their own mini institutions, um, uh, women to study outside of the uh, Kuwait, um, to get degrees in art and curatorial studies, um, to go back and bring more women into the art scene. Oh, that's awesome. Um, there, there's this whole uh, project called Abolish 153, which is about, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, about... No. Um, making art and uh, engaging in the community in dialogue and panel discussions and workshops so that women are more empowered to um, to go against the status quo and to achieving their um, uh, their professional goals, but also for women artists to speak against this one specific article in um, the Constitution that allows um, men... Uh, who rape their wives in marriage uh, get away with it because technically they can't. Um, technically women can't co um, complain about it or get any um, uh, any support from law institutions um, or the government. Yeah, so it's a pretty intense article, but I think um, the amount of work that women are putting forward and not being afraid to seem, um, you know, whatever the stereotype is to women... Um, all the lists and the books of them, um, I think is pretty great. Um, and I've participated in one of their group shows and um, any sold work they donate to the cause. Um, so I think that's one of very many um, very progressive, um, uh, very progressive, what's the word? Well, it's a movement, huh? Yeah, movement. <laughs> yeah. It's a giant movement. There's so many, yeah, so many ways to describe it. Wow. And I would imagine, um, again, like the population of Kuwait is so small that there mm. are more people in New York City than there are in the entire country yeah. of Kuwait. Um, so, Twice as much. Yeah, that's a, wow. Um, so I don't know much about uh, any sort of like Kuwaiti diaspora, mm. but I would imagine within the arts and even within New York City, like you're probably massively underrepresented. Uh, is there a, a community of people from Kuwait here that you've linked up with? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh. Um, there, I actually met more Kuwaiti artists in New York than I did in Kuwait. Um, <laughs> mostly because when you're far away from home, you try to find it easily um, yeah. within uh, wherever you are. So there's a, there's a really cute and really supportive and amazing talented group of Arab women um, and Kuwaiti women in, in New York that I've connected with, that I've collaborated with. Um, we go to each other's shows and openings and um, and most of them either, you know, stay here and make a name for themselves or go back to Kuwait and try to do the same there. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Okay, so I referenced this earlier, but <laughs> most of the articles that I've seen that reference your work talk about the 100 Portrait yes. series, right? Um, so 100 Portrait series of controversial Arab figures. Mm -hmm. That's like the correct title? Um it depends who you ask. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's good because I wanted to get into that. Yeah. Um, so uh, describe this this project to people. Okay. Um, so the series is basically comprised of 100 portraits of ISIS members. Um, so each painting is basically um, a painted portrait of a photograph that I've found um, on social media, like Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, of ISIS either recruiting members, ISIS po posting selfies, or mugshots and um, passport photos from articles that have attained them or bombed a region and killed them. Um, so I took these photos and, and painted them with oil on canvas. You can see four of them yeah. here. Um, and 
I, I usually start by saying, how did I come up with this idea? Um, it started by an assignment when I was in sophomore year um, by my teacher, per Peter Herstoff, who asked me to paint 10 monsters. Um, and everyone came back with what you typically associate monsters with, um, like the things you find under your bed, you mm. know, like sharp teeth, googly eyes, whatever. And I wanted something more uh, close to home, I guess. Um, so the way I approached it was, you know, no one's ever painted terrorists before. Um, I've seen like, you know, Richter's 50 Men or um, Andy Warhol's Most Wanted and all of that, but I've never seen, you know, ISIS and I've never seen them painted, like hand painted very delicately and intimately um, and presented to be seen as this item of beauty, but also controversy in, in its concept. Um, so I painted 10, I took them to class. Um, the reaction was like insane because uh -huh. uh, no one's seen anything like that. And they were so confused because, you know, in the Middle East, when you see portraiture, it's sort of, they're very against it because it's seen as sort of tampering with the hand of God or attempting perfectionism. But in the West, it's seen as idolizing or painting someone you love or, right. um, you know, the wealthy. Um, so seeing that contradiction and having it be from like this quote unquote Arab artist um, really blew their minds. And I wanted to see what it would look like if it was a whole wall of a hundred of them. Yeah. Um, so I spent the rest of the year just painting, painting ISIS terrorists. Um, <laughs> Are you thinking about the audience's reaction? Are you looking to like elicit a specific response? I'm looking mostly to open a dialogue. Mostly okay. for people to see this and question why they're seeing it and why they're confused at their reaction towards it. Um, because I've gotten responses of people thinking they're family members or uh, successful immigrant stories, quote unquote. Um, and it's those specific stereotypes I want to uh, talk against and subvert. So when creating the piece, it was mostly for me to figure out my relationship with them. And then throughout the year, it was a whole psychological journey, really, to, to paint terrorists and just spend this much time with them. And that opened up questions about what makes a terrorist a terrorist? What is the psychology of the person who resorts to terrorism as you know their life goal? Okay. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's awesome because I had like a few reactions. Like even sitting here, you know, and looking at it without any sort of context... I don't think you would have any idea that you're looking at a hundred terrorists, right? Mm -hmm. Probably in like the stereotype or characterization of a terrorist in like in the mind of uh, anyone really, they would, or if you're talking about from the Arab region, they would think of somebody who is dressed more traditionally Muslim, right? Um, I would think that that's what people would think. But even like up here on the wall, like you have a woman in a pink hijab mm -hmm. and she's non-threatening and there's beauty to her. And even in like the gentleman right below her, um, he's, he's different from the guy to the red of him in that like there is so much detail, right? Mm -hmm. So again, like really sort of humanizing him. That's okay. <laughs> really sort of humanizing him in a way that I think that people wouldn't want to do that with somebody that they, that they identify as a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is really interesting in that then it, it does raise the question of like, okay, well, why? Mm. Like, why make him human? Well, because he is a human and he didn't come into this world as a terrorist and that there was a very specific circumstance that led him to become that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, it's quite effective in doing that. Thank um, you. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. Yeah, I went to this talk in Jakarta. It was done by a man who 
gosh, I've talked about him before and now I'm forgetting. I think he, he lives in Singapore. I think he's Dutch. And he was in a hotel when there was a bombing and he lost his legs. Mm. And now he's the one that, well, he's one of the people that I talked to that does work in de-radicalizing people. You mentioned Mm. uh, Ruby earlier. And we watched this video and there was a young guy who was from a rural area, not a lot of resources, uh, no access to education, and he was left behind by his family. They basically didn't want him. And then he came to Jakarta and he was basically like a street kid. And he was you know, taken in by somebody who has become radicalized. Basically he was preyed upon, right? Like because he was an easy target. Um, and then he went and he was the one who, you know, made the bomb and, mm. and killed himself and killed many people and injured this guy. But it's like, not to say that that excuses it because it definitely doesn't excuse it, but it makes you understand it more. Definitely. And it makes you then sort of think about, okay, now we sort of see things within society that need to be alleviated in order to prevent this kind of stuff from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my mind goes in a million places, but those, <laughs> those are the amazing. different direction it yeah. goes when, when, I, when I saw your stuff. That's definitely what I was going for. Um, also, like the more I painted them, the more stories I was reading on each person that I was painting. Mm. And that really opened my mind to what resort, made these people resort to being terrorists. A lot of it was isolation and like you said, lack of education, um, being sort of uh, shunned by society or by family or abandoned. Um, and they resort to something more comforting or more community-based, which is basically ISIS. And the way they offered um, uh, they offered the, that role was basically saying, you know, you get to, to have a house and a wife and we're going to feed you and all you have to do is take these guns and be part of our mission. And that sounds like a great deal if, if you know, you're alone and you have no one else with you and you have nothing to go for in your life and you're just... Um, I guess, you know, an easy target and, and, and preyed upon. So I'm glad you got that off the piece. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something I was looking into. And Do you think the amount of exposure you've gotten from it and um, I guess like we say success, right? Or, or the amount of uh, even press or people noticing it is because it is unique or because it does, you know, make people want to engage in a dialogue? Like, obviously it's good, right? Like, But <laughs> what is it about it do you think that has like sort of caught on? Um, I really can't tell exactly what it is for each person that, uh, interacted with the piece, but I think, um, generally what I've gotten is, is that controversy and the, the switch between knowing how to react to it, um, by saying, oh, this is stereotypical. All Muslims are terrorists or all Mm. Arabs are terrorists. And then there's a, oh, but what makes a terrorist and terrorist and why are they like this? And why is she painting them this way to make them beautiful and appear as human as they really are in real life um, or before they became terrorists, at least. Um, I think, I don't know, I really hope it's 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 a bunch of things. Um, most of the time where I've shown this, I've been around the piece to talk about it. I've never um, sort of showed the piece and just left it there. So I don't know if I would have a different reaction if I wasn't there to explain it or if there were no captions and it was just a piece on its own. So I think dialogue is a huge part of That's the reason why a lot of people connected to it. Um, and then because, you know, again, no one's really painted terrorists or took the time out to yeah, to stare at them. And <laughs> I don't know necessarily like what the path to redemption for someone engaged in like a terrorist act would be. Mm. Um, but people, you know, people do grow and change. People do get de-radicalized. Mm-hmm. Ha- have you had any of the people that are living like 
have any of them been in contact with you? Like, did, did people know that so, you've painted them? Sat, and so the, the, the big part of the project was that I was painting dead members of, oh, okay. of ISIS. Yeah, okay. so I don't think any of them have yeah, all right. <laughs> even been de-radicalized, but um, yeah, hoping the concept of the project is going to um, spark some kind of discussion on that. Where is it... Uh, Where's the rest of it housed right now? Is it all together in an exhibit? Um, no, so part of them are here, part of them are in storage. Um, part of them just came down from the show at, in the meatpacking district at RX. Um, so it's really all over the place okay. at the moment. Um, but yeah. Do you have like a vision or a plan for it to be somewhere someday? I really hope it ends up in an institution or political collection. I don't want it yeah. to just be in someone's living room and shut off from the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, hoping someone picks it up. <laughs> Have you gotten any love or attention back in Kuwait? So <laughs> <laughs> the people that have reacted positively to it are people that are sort of like me in the sense that they want progress and they want yeah. to talk about controversial issues. Um, I have gotten somewhat negative reactions from people thinking that I was um, adding to the stereotypical image of Arabs as terrorists mm. because they haven't, I, th I think, read about it or tried to talk to me about it or thought about it deeper than that. Um, and galleries just didn't want to have it. Uh, <laughs> a couple of galleries were just like, no, this is weird. We don't like it. Um, why are you even doing this? Really? The follow-up question is always, can you paint, you know, calligraphy or women in abayas is something more palatable and marketable. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but so that's why I'm making the work here. That's why I like I'm all the way in New York where it's kind of safer and I could just um, explore and do as much controversial controversial work um, and not get punished for it, I guess. Yeah, I was wondering too, I guess, sort of like if there were uh, people here in the States who maybe thought that it was like glorifying ISIS or anything totally, like that. Totally, yeah. yeah. I had a couple of people that, were, that had a very strong emotional reaction to it by saying that this was glorifying terrorism and that if someone's, someone, and I quote, someone said, if someone saw this piece and decided to become a terrorist, it's your fault. And I thought that was like really intense and, and deep as a reaction, but I, I kind of get it if they don't want to like talk about it more patiently and <laughs> yeah. more open-mindedly. But I, like, I agree with you. I think it's a, an intense response and it's, it's not what I would think while viewing it, but I also think that that's sort of good, right? Like you, yeah. you want it, art to elicit a reaction. Uh, you want it to be somewhat, well, I, I would assume you want some, totally. sometimes you want it to be somewhat dangerous and thought provoking and, you know, some of those thoughts might not be the ones that you agree with. No, but. definitely. I mean, I remember those interactions with people more than the people that said, you know, this is cool and then walked away. Like, yeah. I, I want someone to, you know, not get offended, but someone to have this kind of strong emotional response and, and talk about it. Yeah. Um, that's the next step. Talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you just got back from Harvard. Yes, yesterday. <laughs> Whoa, yesterday. Yeah, that's oh. why my voice is a little shaky. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> I didn't even notice. Um, what were you, you were on a panel in a I conference? I was on a panel, yes. Um, so the the whole conference is called the Arab Conference in Harvard. Um, it's basically the, the biggest conference where a bunch of Arab students and, and professionals and intellectuals and politicians meet and talk about serious issues for three days. Um, I was on a panel in the art section, um, and it was the panel was curated by um, Sahar Amarir, who is a student in Harvard, um, and she's just interested in art and politics in that uh, um, 
in that combination. And she put me and two other artists, Yazan Halawani and um, Muhammad Hafiz, uh, curated or moderated by Sultan Qasimi, who's um, these names probably are. <laughs> well, no, but, you know what? I, to, not to, to interrupt you, but yeah. again, sort of like referring back to Max, I love when people like drop references that people haven't heard of yet because now they can go Google them and yeah, check them out. Yeah, totally. So. Please check them out. Yeah. They're, they're awesome artists. Um, but the, the whole panel discussion was about um, reimagining home. Um, and it's sort of this new wave of, um, of students, of the upcoming generation of people being um, more proactive in reimagining and rebuilding um, how, how they feel about home and being quote-unquote Arab. Um, and the discussion sort of started with us introducing our work and then the questions are more about, you know, how do we want to be perceived? Um, how is our re uh, interaction with institutions in the West compared to the Middle East? Mm. Um, I talked a lot about what I mentioned um, with the, the ISIS project. Um, and the latest work that I'm doing also. But um, yeah, it was a really great like intellectual discussion and we had a lot of time at the end for Q&A and a lot of students, um, two that stood out to me was one that was also an Arab artist who was going to Pratt and she was just asking, um, you know, how do you sort of uh, stand your ground and be this Arab artist in a place that doesn't really understand you? Yeah. Um, and another question was, how can you take the responsibility of... Um, explaining yourself and your work every time you have to show it because I can't just put up a painting and walk away I have to be like this is significant because I'm from Kuwait because this is my interaction with the government and this is why I'm painting this you know and a lot of my time at SVA was just explaining what Kuwait was and <laughs> the politics and everything behind that um, but another big question that I, I really loved part of, in, in that discussion sorry if I'm rambling but no, no. I had a great time um, <laughs> was that um American institutions like MoMA and the Met and the Guggenheim and how they don't really have Arab art in their collections unless it's in the Islamic art department. Um, mm. So that's like a big thing that we're trying to work against is uh, advocating that Arab artists can be shown in the contemporary art section of galleries instead of just the Islamic art section or in a specific themed show about Arab art that will just be taken down and hidden away. So that's sort of my goal as an artist and Sultan as the moderator um, who is a He's a big collector, has the biggest collection of modern Arab art in the Middle East. He's trying to implant his collection in their um, in their permanent collection and not just their temporary or back, All right. back so of I'm, storage. <laughs> I'm going to touch on those questions that were asked to you because mm -hmm. I'm even thinking and reflecting like, oh, that's exactly what I did at the beginning of this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do you, is there a point where you want to sort of shake labels and just be an artist and not totally. have to be like, well, I'm an Arab artist, or I'm a Kuwaiti artist, or, or I'm a woman artist. artist. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, I just want to be seen. I would love to just be seen as an artist, and then the work speak for itself based on what it wants to talk about and its relationship to me. I can't always separate myself from the work mm. um, because I'm creating from myself. Like it's it's different if I'm just making you know design work that's you know, specific for the branding of a company and yeah. specific for interior design because I can separate myself from the work that I'm creating. But um, but with the art that I want to do, it's always connected to my experience and I can't always shake the labels, but I would eventually hope that, you know, we don't need it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something that I grapple with because, I mean, this is, you know, I've, I've done this all around the world and more often than not, the person sitting across from me is 
at least in from where they're from and the work they're doing, like quite different from me. Often, I think probably like you know politically in terms of in terms of like morals and, and mm. outlook on the world, like they're probably pretty similar to me. But I do grapple with like uh, I'm interested, right? But how do I remain interested and want to learn without like making that person feel like they're in a zoo, right? And like I'm mm-hmm. prodding them for all these like explain this about yourself and explain this because it's different. When really, like, what is different in where we live here in New York City? Because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Like, I wonder, I wonder how we get to the point where it can largely be seen mm-hmm. just f- for the art. I, I I was asking myself the same question, and the it depends on each artist and sort of the responsibility they want to take. And I'm totally fine with answering all the questions and speaking for like 17 hours nonstop about uh-huh. this because. <laughs> I know that a lot of people don't want to and a lot of people just prefer for things to change on their own and to remain silent about it. Um, I also hope that, you know, the art that I make can speak for itself in that sense, because I feel like art is sort of more palatable than just word to word conversation and it can reach more people. Um, and it's it's more of a an easier thing to digest that has a message that you can send out. Um, so yeah, I'm, I love talking. I love okay. like well, that's, <laughs> that panel discussion that's yesterday. <laughs> I was, yeah. Also panel discussion in, um, the Asia society last year. Um, and that, that was thankfully recorded. So I don't have to like go over everything I talked about, but it was also the same sort of conclusion is that we need to advocate for more Arab art to be, you know, normalized and in, um, permanent collections and museums and galleries so that people, have a better educated sense of what it is. Um, and then if they want to learn more, they can learn more. But yeah, that's awesome. it should just be there first, you know? <laughs> you graduated not too long ago, is yeah, that correct? Okay. Me. So, I mean, did you, uh, you've got like uh, a lot of life ahead of you and a lot of career <laughs> ahead of you, but did you sort of anticipate that you'd be speaking on a panel in Harvard and like have work that's, been recognized now around the world like what was your vision for (laughs) like your path through this the world of art um honestly everything comes at a surprise to me uh I didn't expect to be asked to speak at Harvard but um but I I do understand I do see the reaps of some efforts that I've put so Mm. it's not that I've just been quietly in my studio and then someone would knock on my door and give me opportunities you know I would go chase everything that I could get um, always out there, always asking, always like trying to connect and network with people. Um, I didn't expect it to come this far, but I, I really have, I have higher goals now. Like <laughs> that I've, because I've accomplished this much in such little time now, I have higher expectations for myself and what to achieve. Oh, that's good though. Um, I'm also starting my MFA this fall. Okay. Um, in the West Coast. Oh yeah? Yes. Where are you going? CalArts. Wow. Yeah, I was, I got into a few schools and I was debating, you know, which school to get into. And I think CalArts is the best choice at the oh, moment. That's awesome. I think a, a good switch from New York for a little bit just to get some fresh air, good weather and sort of um, dive deep into the, the concepts of my work because it's a very conceptually driven school um, compared to others that are more like technical and visual. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. 
So that's my next step. Oh, well, I mean, good luck with that. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, the Are you currently working right now on the Hooded series or is that that's completed? That, that's what's behind um, me? It is what is behind you. They sort of reemerge every time I say I'm done. Uh, okay. At the moment I'm done, I want to move back to color, which is a piece directly behind you. Um, and that's bringing in, um, bringing in more color, green and blue, but... Um, the process doesn't change. So the process of the ink figures was um, basically staining. So super wet canvas and then drops of ink and I would like tilt it and it would move around to find the shape. And then I'll let it dry, sorry. I would let it dry and then come back, uh, add another layer, tilt it around and then it would just like build up into these weird That's figures. That's cool. Uh, thank you. So I was, I was into that for basically a year too. Um, and now I want to get into color. So I'm using the same uh, concept with this, but instead of just letting the ink find itself, I'm giving it little pools of water first and then oh, dropping okay. the ink and it would sort of spread within where I let it go. And then there are spills and happy mistakes that are all around the piece. So it's it's not completely in my control, which is something I love and completely different from the Isis portraits, which was like very yeah, meticulous, sure. like one haired brushes per eyelash, you know? Wow. So it's sort of expanding on that. Is the idea here also about identity? Um, yeah. So the hooded figures are more, it's a more abstract uh, series that I worked on. It didn't really start with a specific uh, idea, more of a question of uh, how can I exhibit the specific emotion or identity or uh, psychological state through the way the ink was interacting on canvas. So I wanted to put the politics and the concepts and everything in the hands of the paint. Um, yeah, I think I think they came out pretty cool. Uh, I really love what you know, what came out of it, it was a long, long process. And I learned a lot about sort of letting go and <laughs> trusting. Well, so again, like my brain kind of goes in crazy places, but uh, again, if I had no context and I didn't know about your work and I was just looking at it, it could be people, it could be mountains, mountains yeah. it could be almost like, like a phantom, um, like a ghostly figure. Um Again, are you hoping to sort of elicit that ambiguity yes. and like, okay. Totally, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It's one of the uh, the series that I didn't want to say, this is what I mean, so you have to look at it. It's uh, more like, what do you feel <laughs> coming from it? And um, and it also differs from people who know me and people who don't know me. If, yeah. it, if it was just out in the street, it would have a completely different reaction than people who have already seen my other work. And Do you think maybe you get to a point where you don't answer that question and that sort of also maybe takes some labels off of you? Like if someone were to say, um, like the one right behind me, like I just mentioned, so people can't see it, so mm -hmm. I'm sorry people, but <laughs> yeah, it looks like two hooded figures or like I said, could also be mountains. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, like what, I guess I'm wondering like what would happen if someone's like, well, what is this? If you're just like, that's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love that. I mean, I think that's a, a goal for a lot of artists is to have the art just completely speak for themselves. And mm. it's a very difficult uh, goal to attain, but it's um, something I'm hoping to figure out within the next, I don't know, lifetime or yeah. a few years or my MFA, who knows, like yep. one day it's going to click. And you have time. <laughs> I have a lot of time, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it, uh, it just comes by painting more and by reading and researching um, and sort of putting myself in a very honest position with the work. And I think that honesty hopefully comes out and translates. Yeah. 
do you think about like I, I'm assuming like there's work that's a thesis for the MFA? Like, do you think that far ahead or yeah, yeah, yeah? <laughs> are you going to keep that one under wraps? I don't know if I yeah, I'm going to keep it under wraps okay. for now. And I I've heard a lot about Cal Arts in the sense that painters go in and come out as performance artists, or sculptors go in and come out as conceptual artists. Oh wow! So I'm excited for that change. I'm really open to yeah, just seeing where the tide takes me and keeping you know my intentions and my goals in place, but not specific things that I want to end up in. Cool. Um, so we'll see what happens. I could be a performance artist in two years and not do painting anymore. Whoa. I don't think I will because I love painting, uh-huh. but you know, who knows what happens in grad school. <laughs> Have you like dabbled in, in any other mediums? Um, I've dabbled a little in sculpture. I wasn't too oh. into it. I, I don't know. I don't really feel great about creating too much space with an object around it. I like creating environments, so installation is something I want to get into. Working with lights and um, and sound and space, that's giving too much. But um, yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh man, I'm now not. What is the name of it? I just went to this place in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, oh come on, Tim. <laughs> the something house, and you have to like get buzzed up, and you go up. And it is a room with the, it, I don't even know what it is, but there's these strange like noisemakers mm. and there's incense going and there's lights and there's sort of like this glowing tapestry, this, this sleep house, dream, dream house, dream house. Have you ever heard of that? No, I've never heard of that. Um, Cause what you that. said just like triggered that in my mind. Yeah. And sort of like spatial experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, a room and there's pillows and people just go there and they sleep. That's awesome. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, is it the, is it like, um, is that on like 30 something street? It's like a massive building in the middle of the city. No, it's, oh. it's, uh, it's right by Chinatown. Okay. And. Where they read auras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you wouldn't even know it's there. It just looks like almost like apartments That's and, and businesses. And yeah. To me, it was almost like a mushroom trip for people that don't do mushrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> Yeah, that made me think of that. That's awesome. I want to talk about like this location for a minute sure. because uh, we were mentioning it before we recorded, but we're like sort of East Williamsburg, Bushwick. Bushwick, yeah, yeah. where it breaks off. Okay. Um, and like there's, maybe you know this, but there, there's artwork everywhere. And mm-hmm. like you'll see the tags for like Bushwick Collective and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in this neighborhood, is, is stuff sort of commissioned or do people just throw art up wherever they want to? Um, it depends. People throw a lot of art up wherever they want to. Um, there's a lot of vandalizing, but in a good way. Um, it's sort of like people allow their own spaces to be covered by other art. Um, but there are like two or three specific walls where it's like a company that owns the wall and okay. they paint specific murals for ads. Like they had an Ariana Grande ad or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it was some BS, but... Um, <laughs> But someone spray painted it on top and then they came back the next day and painted over it. So it's like very like monitored, curated. But a lot of the other spaces are super open and free, which I love. And yeah. it's a great spot for repasting. Yeah, it looks really cool. I would imagine just, and again, like you, you split this space here. I would imagine that the community is just like really valuable in terms of like your own inspiration and like totally. furthering your own craft. Yeah, as soon as... Um, so. The city to me was my inspiration when I was in the, when I was in school, because um, it was kind of like my campus. Um, we only had like buildings spread out across like Chelsea and the east side, um, and so you'd have to walk around the streets and and through galleries and museums to get to the next class. Um, so that's where I got my inspiration from. Moving to Bushwick, it's it's more the people and everyone else's um, 
same goal of making it in the art world mm. and sort of creating and um, you know questioning art and painting and that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great space. I'm kind of sad to leave, but <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you mentioned. I think I can't remember if we were recording, but uh, you mentioned like sort of like that this area is what Williamsburg like once was, right? Mm-hmm. And so I went to this talk the other day about um, like urbanization and gentrification, and it was interesting because like obviously the Bushwick of the 1990s and the like mm. late 1980s it was much different yeah and you'll see this now like in parts of New York or even like uh, in Detroit where a lot of artists will move into places because the rent is cheap and again mm-hmm. like because you can sort of do your art unbothered exactly but then that I mean looks really cool and just like I guess is really cool and draws a lot of attention to the place and then people start moving in exactly. and then rents get jacked up and then yeah. like nobody can live there except for people who are living in high rises and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have no solution for that. But you, again, yeah. sort of to your point with the Ariana Grande, you, like, you see that now happening also in Bushwick. Like it's, oh, totally. it's spreading out here into central Brooklyn. I mean, uh, I moved here in November and I already changed like yeah. since now. Yeah, since now. And the place where I live, which is deeper into Bushwick, um, was was amazing it was like full of culture and life and and people from all over the place and now it's slowly and slowly getting gentrified again and filled yeah. and i wonder <laughs> how, you, going up how and you prevent that don't follow artists around uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i mean I come visit true. us but don't live next to us because then we can't afford to live there and then you lose you lose all of that. Um, I don't know where people are moving into now ridgewood is becoming big um, uh. which is pretty far into you know, into Brooklyn slash Queens. Yeah. Um, Gowanus used to be also an artist hub. Oh, yeah. And now it's just... Yeah, I uh, I worked in Red Hook for seven years, so right next to Gowanus. Mm-hmm. And also, like, again, like, sort of similar to here, you have all the, the factories that were once used for, um, like, the dockyards and shipping Yeah. that are turned into... Studios. Yeah, studios, artist hubs, and but like Sandy really sort of exposed Red Hook because like mm. because Red Hook's not really directly attached to a train, um, it sort of flew under the radar. But mm-hmm. then like you had like the the prices of even the warehouses and stuff like that getting jacked up because mm-hmm. like the world took notice after Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's Red Hook maybe. has a cool air population though. A cool. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of um, uh, Syrians and Yemenis and um, just like Middle Eastern people cooking awesome food. Oh, I did not <laughs> um, know that. Yeah, we had the the what's it called the Poet Society, and it was connected by boat through Little Syria, which was in Lower Manhattan, close to Wall oh, Street. Oh, cool. Um, and that's where like all the po- poets and artists from. Um, from Syria and the Middle East came to like congregate until they were kicked out. But <laughs> Red Hook has like a, a good population of their left. I lived for that time that I worked there. I lived in Bay Ridge. Nice. And Bay Ridge also is sort of like split between like um, like Italian, Greek, Irish, mm-hmm. and then yeah, uh, like uh, people from Yemen, Palestine. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a big community of uh, of Arabs there too. Yeah. There's a strange, like, weird political situation there, too. I forget the name of the guy. But um, at the time that, like, this country started going really hard recently with, like, ICE and the when there was, like, the halt in immigration from countries, like Mm. the... Must have been. God, what is it even? Like, the town council guy or whatever was, like, 
supporting the Muslim ban. It's like, well, dude, half of your neighborhood is Muslim and yeah, yeah. Arab. Like, um, oh, it's terrible. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a tangent now. But <laughs> so, if if people want to um, check out your work, either in person or on the internet, where can they go? Um, well, depending on where uh, I have shows or not, um, most of my work is always going to be updated on Instagram and then my and then my website. Um, I try to keep my website for professional photos, but uh-huh. my Instagram is more like iPhone taken. I mean, Samsung, <laughs> Samsung taking photos. Um, I I've had a couple shows here and there, so most of my work has been traveling. It's a quiet state now, aside from the panel discussion. I have a group show in the summer. I'm not exactly sure what day it is. Okay, but I will announce it on Instagram, and that's where you can see my work next. Cool. And then California, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. I mean, that, that's, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited. I don't know if I'm going to come back. I hope I come back. I really want to. I yeah. want to go there for two years and then just come back here and get reintegrated into the art scene and see what happens to Bushwick then. Cool. Yeah. Is there anything else that we should plug, any peers, anything that people should check out if, uh, if they're not in the know? Um, yeah, I'll shout out some uh, Arab artists that I like. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, Farah Salam is pretty awesome. Um, you can find her on Instagram and her website. She's ba- from Kuwait, based in Chicago right now. She's in the Art Institute. Say her name again, just because there was some rattling. Oh, Farah Salam. Okay, cool. Um, I'll write you a list if you want to. Yeah, that'd be yeah. awesome. And we'll put it in the show notes so people can just click Sweet. that. Sweet. Um, so she's um, sort of between performance art and art therapy. So her work is really amazing and beautiful and thought-provoking. Um, there's also Mahal Asakir, who was one of my friends here that I met that's from Kuwait, but she's in Brooklyn. Um, she just released her book of uh, photos of women in Kuwait. Um, oh, and she took cool. these photos in their bedroom. So it was like their most intimate place. You know, you don't really get access to photos like that. So yeah, yeah. Wow. her series was really groundbreaking. Yeah, she was just in Rolling Stone and Vogue and all of that. So definitely go support her. Oh, cool. Um, I might reach out to her. That sounds really interesting. She's amazing. Yeah, and I think she's she just had a book signing like yesterday. Oh wow! Um, and I don't know how long she's going to be in Brooklyn for before she's back to Kuwait to do to do more. Ooh. All right, we'll talk after I record. Stuff. Yeah, and then uh, Aziz Mutawa is a, a really good photographer and one of my best friends. Um, he's based in Kuwait and he likes to take pictures of landscapes in Kuwait that are not traditional. Oh, um, cool! So it's not going to be all desert photos. It's, it's really cool photos that he sneaks out in his car, like drives an hour in the middle of nowhere and takes really cool photos. Um, so yeah, I guess those three. That's awesome. My besties. So um, I hadn't thought to ask this, but you know, for, I was going to say for better or worse, I guess for worse, um, I know people who have been pretty much everywhere. Like I had a guy on the podcast who's literally been to every single country, <laughs> but uh, in my travels, like I have not come across people who've been to Kuwait. Yeah, um, it's not a tourist attraction really, and and you're not missing a lot if you visit. But what were you gonna say? <laughs> well, okay, so I mean, I just went to Brunei, right? Yes. And like this week in particular, oh, press about this. Brunei is like not good, right? Yeah, um, no. yeah. Uh, and I could actually go on like a pretty long tangent about that, like with some theories. But mm-hmm. um, I had like an amazing time, and yeah. like it. It definitely isn't a tourist destination. Like I probably wouldn't recommend people traveling through South Southeast Asia go there because, like, you know, a lot of people that are going to Southeast Asia want like cheap food and like adventure and yeah, like the beach. A, and a lot of young people want to party and go to the beach and stuff like that. And like, you, there's none of that there really. Mm. But the interactions I had with people were amazing, mm. and 
like I was, wasn't by myself really for like a second. I was hanging out with people. I was invited. I met this guy on the water and like he invited me to his home. I met his family. They invited me back three days later and like cooked me dinner. Um, I had a couple of people on the podcast that I hung out with the whole time. Like it, it was amazing. Um, yeah. and so I just, it's making me think like, oh, like I wonder what it would be like to visit Kuwait. Um, it would be fun if you know someone in Kuwait that could show you around. There you go. Okay. That's always the, the thing everyone says. Um, there's not much to see in the sense of like uh, nature mm. or public attractions. It's mostly a desert and then there's beach and then there's like a mini city and neighborhoods. Okay. Um, but there are amazing people there. I definitely would say that. Um, if you do go, let me know. I'll hook you up with oh, a bunch awesome. of people. Cool. Um, I'll probably be, li- be there this summer if you end up going this summer. Oh, but, awesome. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't mention um, my friend. His name is Mosan uh, or Abdul Mosan. And he um, is from Saudi Arabia, but he uh, moved here and we met here uh, in SVA. And he does a lot of work about um, about um, sort of subverting tradition uh, and saying that tradition is more of the illusion of permanence. That's what he says. Oh. Um, I think you should meet him because if you go there, he can definitely meet you in Kuwait um, and show you around. But Kuwait is, um, sorry for the mini plug, but Kuwait No, no, that's is, awesome. Uh, would be fun to explore in the sense of its people. Yeah. Um, and the food. I would say the food is better than New York. That's Whoa. a big statement. Okay, I, I'm going to come I will ba- repeat that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come. Well, actually, I'll ask that now then. Are there places in New York to get Kuwaiti food? I haven't found Kuwaiti food. I found uh, some desserts that Kuwaitis eat, but they're mostly Lebanese or Palestinian. Okay. Or, Egyptian, Turkish, but I haven't found a specifically Kuwaiti place. Is Manhattan the place to go for that kind of stuff? I would say Red Hook and Queens. Like there are patches in Queens that have really good um, Middle Eastern food. I don't know if a place in the city that I really enjoyed, um, there's a place called Menusha and it has like those Lebanese flat type of flatbreads, our version of pizza without sauce. Um, and it has like za'atar or cheese or like meat and all of that stuff. And it's really delicious, but I can't, I can't think so of... Queens is always the answer in terms of food. I feel bad that I didn't even think of Queens. Yeah, because no. <laughs> it, oh my, like Queens oh, is... Yemen Cafe. Where's that? That's in Brooklyn. Okay, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> What was I saying? Queens. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Queens does not get enough love mm-hmm. just like out there in the ether, but Queens has the best food, like mm-hmm. even like Elmhurst, Jackson Heights. Uh, but, okay. So, again, like I worked in Red Hook for seven years and I feel like I know it well. Like where, where is the Arab food in? All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, while you're yeah. looking that up, I'll also say in terms of we were talking about uh Kuwait, Kuwait has like a bunch of islands too, right? That are sort of uninhabited, I guess. Um, yeah, they're pretty small. They're mostly uh, they're mostly like uh, people go there so they could go fishing or swimming or you know spend a day at the beach and go back. Um, Failika Island is more popular um, in the sense that you can rent out like mini beach houses and there's like oh, jet skiing whoa. and cool water activities. Um, so I would yeah I would go to Failika if you want to visit. Cool. Um, this is giving me Boston because I was just there and my maps didn't. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I know you're looking that up, but uh, yeah, I would love to do um, even like Kuwait, Lebanon. Um, I would definitely love to talk to your friend about 
Saudi Arabia too, because mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a lot there to talk about. So top three, Tenerine, Bedawi Cafe, and uh, Yemen Cafe. There's also Zaytuns, which are great. Okay. Yeah. So Zaytuns is on Smith Street, right? I believe so. I have been there. Did you like it? Yes. They... <laughs> um, Tenerine actually, okay. Tenerine has the best catering. Anytime we have events that are like mostly Arabs, we get Tenerine. <laughs> I have been there because that's more like Sunset, right? Like Sunset Ish, Park. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So people should check those out too. Yes. I'll send you more when my phone's being nice. Awesome. All right. Well, we plugged everything. People, like we said, can go to the show notes. Yes. They'll find your stuff. Um, They'll find your colleagues and your friends that you talked about. Yes, follow the gram. (laughs) I say this and I feel like sometimes people think I say it just because like they're on here, but I've been really fortunate and honestly, sometimes it's come true already, but I've been really fortunate to sit down with people who I feel are like on the cusp of something big. Mm -hmm. And again, like you're you're very successful in getting a lot of notice at like a young age. Uh, And I can see like this is, this is, going to send you places. So again, people like get there ahead of the curve so that you, can, <laughs> you can be one of the original people who were, um, who were following you and your work. So yeah. Thank you so Follow much. That's honestly like an honor. That's my first podcast. So I'm super excited. And awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me, honestly. Yeah. So let's do this. You're welcome. And thank you for being here. Um, how long does an MFA take? Two years? Two years. Yeah. Okay. So maybe at some point, <laughs> mid process or at the end of the process, we'll do uh, we'll do a part two and see where you're at. Oh yeah, for sure. If you're ever in LA or Valencia, <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is a wrap on episode number 110 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Razan. Thank you to all of you Voyagers for tuning in as always. Uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode for the links to all of Razan's information. I also forgot to mention at the outset that I have a Patreon account. If you are able to support the TV TV podcast financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. That's a subscription-based service where you can give, uh, you know, 50 cents, $1, $5, $5,000 if you're able to do so. And that will keep the travel going, the stories coming all the stuff that you get from this podcast. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. I'm going to play us out here with a song. I was looking for something from Kuwait and it came across Sons of Yusuf. They have like a couple of, I don't even think they're parodies really. They're sort of remixes of popular rap songs in the States where they do their own version of it. So like they have like We Dem Boys. This song I think is an original um, so the song is called One Time and the band again is Sons of Yusuf. That's going to play us out, folks. So uh, as always, until next time, please take care of each other. Tanzania, New Year's, Gardin, Bill Kuwait, 
gonna be very special. Hey doll, hey doll, that's our camel, lovely camel. I can go on and on. Yeah, Jamaa, we gotta be strong. Yeah. 